You're checking out at the grocery store. Produce, seasoning, snacks have all made their way down the conveyor belt. Once that cashier has bagged the last item, she turns to you and ignites the moral dilemma. Would you like to round up to donate to charity? Well, would you? It's not just you. One expert says there's a science to when we donate and how much we give. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, something's got to give. From checkout charity to challenging pay inequality. Later in the show, America has a pay inequality problem. By any measure, Black Americans have less economic stability than white Americans. But compared with white Americans, Black Americans are somewhat more optimistic that things are going to get better in the future. But first, do you round up to donate to charity at the checkout counter? Are you more likely to donate if the cashier asks or if the question is just on your receipt? Adrian Sudbury is a professor of economics at Longwood University. She says there's a science to how and when people give, and most donors give less than a dollar. Adrian, what exactly is checkout charity? So it's this this phase where you are checking out at either the grocery store or even online these days. And as you're going to pay for your goods, there's a little question that might pop up um, on the pin pad or um, the cashier might directly ask you and say, hey, would you like to donate to charity today? So you've probably encountered it before. You know, I didn't used to, but I feel like in the last four years, maybe a lot. Yes, it's within the last 10 years, um, checkout charity campaigns have become so much more popular. And and even since I started looking into them back in like 2016, I've encountered them, you know, more and more. So they're, they're definitely working and, and people are noticing. I mostly experience it when I go grocery shopping. And every time in this one particular chain, the cashier says, do you want to round up? And I always say, yes. What about you? Where do you encounter it most? Um, I first encountered it at PetSmart, but uh, these days I see it at the grocery store, um, even when I'm checking out at you know TJ Maxx, Marshalls, all those places, sometimes the ones you least expect it to happen um, have now gotten involved in these checkout charity campaigns. So of the ones you mentioned that you've encountered, what are the different styles? So PetSmart asks you what, Roundup or a specific donation? PetSmart usually has uh, their ask on the credit card pin pad machine, and they usually offer um, some fixed amount options. So either like $1, $3, $5, that kind of thing. And that would go to what? That would go to their charity. So they actually have their own charity that helps place pets with families. And the grocery store? Well, at Walmart, they notoriously raise funds for Children's Miracle Network Hospital. They've raised millions with their checkout charity campaign, so that goes towards um, those hospitals. And are there any others you've encountered? I mean, just in your usual shopping life? Oh, St. Jude's. I've encountered a St. Jude's campaign at uh, TJ Maxx Marshall's. And various, uh, I would say, campaigns for feeding hungry families, usually around uh, Thanksgiving in grocery stores. Publix usually runs some some campaigns. I'm trying to remember the specific charity, but I don't. (laughs) I'm curious which ones you most automatically contribute to and which ones you take a pass on. Well, I have two dogs, (laughs) so I, I tend to almost always uh, select yes at PetSmart. And then, you know, children's charities oftentimes will pull at my heartstrings. And so I'll say yes to those. Um, but at some point, you have, to, you have to learn to say no. So some, sometimes I do end up saying no, thank you. Do you find it easier to say no when you're looking at a keypad rather than saying no to a cashier who's asking you? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's much easier to select no thanks on a keypad than to tell that sweet-faced cashier that you did not want to donate to charity today. (laughs) So tell me about your research. Why did you start looking into this? And what sort of experiment did you set up to test it? 
So I first became interested in this I, in this topic um, from experience. I went to PetSmart. I encountered this donation situation. And at the time, I was a, a grad student at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, in an experimental economics class. And so it got me thinking. And I did a little research, and it turns out nobody had really investigated the impact of different asks in this situation on whether people were donating and how much. So I started my first research project trying to figure that out. Does the type of ask matter? And at UT, we had this computer lab that was dedicated to economics experiments. So we brought a bunch of people into the lab. We had them earn money. And then at the end, we asked them, to donate in a manner similar to, to which they would encounter at checkout charity. And then we were able to study the differences across different asks. Were you able to make really conclusive determinations from that? Yes. We found some pretty strong evidence that the type of ask does matter. Um, mainly the differences are between an open-ended ask where, you know, somebody could just donate any amount that they wanted versus a fixed or rounding ask where, you know, the cashier asks you for a specific amount, like 65 cents or a dollar. And what we find is that donation rates are much higher in these fixed ask amounts than just an open-ended question. Um, say you're going to the grocery store, the cashier might ask you, would you like to donate to charity today? And they don't ask you for a specific amount, they let you pick the amount. That would be an example of an open-ended ask. Um, so you get to select exactly how much you would like to donate. And oftentimes you're not given any sort of reference point. So you have to figure out <laughs> how much you want to donate in that setting. And the other setting is similar to what we were discussing earlier, that fixed ask where the cashier asks you specifically for a dollar or $5 for a specific charity um, or or for you to round up your purchase and you're donating some amount less than a dollar. And people are more likely to do what? They are more likely to donate in the situation where they are asked for a specific amount. What about rounding up versus $1, $2, $5? Is one of those more popular? Yes. We looked at, if you look at asks under a dollar and compare asking somebody for 50 cents versus just rounding up their purchase for 50 cents. Um, there is a strong leaning towards rounding. And what we were able to figure out is because of something called loose change effects. And the whole idea is that people like getting rid of change. So if by donating, you get to get rid of change, then that makes you happier. So you're more likely to donate. Don't you think more people or more and more people are using credit cards now, so change is less of a factor? But maybe they're still rounding up because of that effect. They're picturing the change. You bring up a great point. Um, in our experiment, we do use cash um, for payment, so it's a real factor that they might have change. But you're correct. A lot of people just use credit cards these days. There are some studies that show people have preferences for whole numbers, so you might still see this effect even if you're using credit cards. Um, if you're like me and you're like filling up at the gas pump and you're trying to get that number to hit hit an even amount, you know, if it's like sixteen fifty or a whole twenty dollar amount, oh, yeah. we we the whole numbers somehow make us happy. So you might still see that effect even without <laughs> even without change. Yeah, totally. What about in restaurants where increasingly restaurants or takeout, where increasingly the keypad or the bill says, "Would you like to tip fifteen percent, twenty, twenty five? Is that similar to this? Oh, it's incredibly similar. Um, there's there's a lot of good studies that that kind of go back and forth between the tipping um, setting and checkout charity setting. Um, yes, that's that's a different type of setting where instead of an amount, you're actually like referencing them to a percentage. Um, so. <laughs> Speaking of tipping, if you're like me, when you tip, I always end up rounding it somehow to a nearest whole dollar amount in the amount that I tip. So I say I'll pick 15% and then I'll somehow finagle uh, my total bill amount to be a whole number on top of that. So I even encounter those preferences, you know, on my own in, in the tipping setting. Who do you think is going to be most interested in your results? The charities, the businesses, 
customers? So my hope is that, you know, all practitioners might see this as a comprehensive study to think about the question that they ask and the way that they're soliciting for these funds does matter even when you're only asking people for, say, 50 cents or a dollar. And so if you're explaining to them how it matters, what would you say to them? Go for the rounding up technique or ask for a specific amount, not an open-ended amount? So I would definitely recommend to ask for a specific amount. That tends to generate uh, more participation, more more um, people donating, but that they should think very critically about what amount they're asking for. And it might depend on the different donation settings. So people donating at the grocery store might have different preferences from people donating online. So it's, it's kind of all about balance there. Was there an explosion in the amount given and, and the number of people asking for it during the pandemic? You know, I'm not quite sure if the pandemic had any direct effect on um, the number of campaigns, but we've definitely seen increases in the amount of money um, being generated. So Engage for Good does a study every year, and um, I've been monitoring it (laughs) for a few years. And uh, the money being raised by campaigns generating over a million dollars has increased pretty much every year. Do you think as gas prices go up or the inflation increases or people worry about their savings that the giving will go down? That could also be a possibility. My thought immediately goes to um, the prevalence of these campaigns might be more impactful in in lowering overall donations. Because if I'm asked, you know, as I as I go to the grocery store and then later in the pharmacy and then later even as I'm, you know, checking out uh, online on my phone, um, it gets repetitive. And so I, I think there's definitely probably a limit on how many times people would be willing to donate to these types of campaigns. And so there might be some competition generated here in the near future. I see what's in it for, let's say, PetSmart, because they're asking for money for animals, for their own charity. But what about grocery stores who are saying, please give for the food bank, which is a great give. What's the advantage to the grocery store asking for that every time you shop? So there's some research into why these these entities are are pairing up with charities. And a lot of it refers to kind of cause marketing. It's good for the grocery store's brand. Um, and, and they should, you know, make an impact in their community. Um, but what I've encountered most often is that you know, people are are inclined to give for a few different reasons. And um, it's really those stores tapping into that giving behavior. Why that store in particular picks that charity? Um, a lot of times it's that somebody on the board is involved in that charity and, and they feel very passionately about that particular charity. Or it could be that, you know, they did it once and they decide, well, we're going to keep doing it every year. We're kind of locked into always fundraising for, say, St. Jude's. And so that's that's kind of some reasons why, why you might encounter these repetitive um, scenarios at different stores. Adrian Sudbury, this is fascinating. Thanks for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It was great to talk with you. Adrian Sudbury is a professor of economics at Longwood University. America has a pay inequality problem. Women on average make less than men, and white people of any gender tend to earn more than non-white people. Carolyn Hanley is a professor of sociology at William & Mary. She says the common advice to earn a degree to increase earnings is misguided, and that the advice places the burden on the individual to make money rather than the systemic issues that undergird the issue. Caroline, how much of a pay inequality problem do we have in the U.S.? Is it something that is growing or is it pretty steady? Well, inequality in people's take-home pay, their earnings from their jobs, is at a higher level than it's been at any time uh, since the Great Depression. Um, And there's no signs that inequality in pay is slowing down. Is it worse here than in other developed nations? Are we all in the same boat? Absolutely. You know, when you compare the United States to other similar countries, only in the United States among 
kind of wealthy, advanced industrial democracies have we seen inequality skyrocket to the same degree at that same trajectory. And why do we think that is? Well, it's really a matter of our policy choices. We have chosen not to create fair rules of the game that kind of govern economic life, starting with our workplaces. Do you think it sort of got away from us after NAFTA? Do you think it started to happen and worsen and our laws just didn't keep up with what was going on? Well, you know, I people trace the kind of beginning of this current period of high levels of inequality to the 1970s. So it goes back even before NAFTA. Really, we had this great shock to the global economy in the 1970s. Real earnings started to stagnate. That means they didn't keep growing along with the cost of living in 1973. And then inequality, the gap between workers at the bottom and workers at the top, started to grow starting in 1979. And it's been growing and growing ever since. In the 1980s, the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. Uh, Starting in the 1990s, people in the middle and the bottom have just been kind of working harder just to maintain kind of stagnant take-home pay, whereas people at the very top have just been taking home more and more of our national output and value that we all work together to produce. Was this happening starting in the 70s, 80s, and the 90s mostly because American factories went belly up? Well, you know, we've had these waves of economic changes Uh, in the 1980s into the 1990s. The factory story was a big part of it. But manufacturing as a share of our economy also started to slow down and the service industry grew. And so we can't just talk about manufacturing when we talk about, well, how did we get here? When we talk about this inequality of earnings and income and wages, Are you mostly talking about African-American and people of color and new workers coming from other countries in the American system? Are we talking about people all across the spectrum? Well, when I talk about inequality here, I am talking about the overall distribution of earnings among employed Americans, people who are working in paid employment in the United States. And so I'm really emphasizing class and kind of inequality and who gets paid what within our workplaces. You know, I think that talking about racial and ethnic differences is important and gender differences and how those two spheres of difference intersect is a really important part of the conversation. Um, One of the things that we know is that across the board, even among people with the same um, education and with the same type of job and with the same experience, men make more than women. And then within gender groups, people who are non-Hispanic and white make more than people who are black and who are Hispanic or Latinx. And Asian Americans tend to make, on average, on par with white members of their gender group. Um, But there's a huge amount of variation within the Asian and Asian American community uh, in pay as well. And of course, the argument is always, hey, if you had the same opportunities, you could make that kind of fantastic income. And we all have the same shot at it. Well, the thing is that we don't all have the same shot at it. And frankly, it's hurting all of us to have such an, a lopsided way of dividing the, the fruits of our collective labor. You know, workplaces that have um, more stable and more um, equitable pay practices have workers who are more engaged, who are more productive. Um, it's better for the bottom line in the long term, both at the company level and honestly, at the national level, to have lower levels of economic inequality. Um, And honestly, we're at the point where inequality has become not just a drag on economic growth, it's become a drag on our politics and our um, social fabric as well. Labor unions have been making a comeback recently, but you've argued it's not enough, that we urgently need labor law reform. What do you mean by that? You know, I think that unions are a really important part of the mix if we're talking about how do we build a politics to reduce inequality and make more fair rules of the game. So we have maybe 10% of American workers are unionized right now. It's hard work forming a union. And even if you manage to uh, have your union recognized, 
it's hard to get companies to actually follow the existing law. So, you know, one thing that I would love to see is better enforcement of our existing labor law so that workers and unions are playing by those rules um, to exercise their rights to organize. One of the things we've seen is that employers have kind of ramped up what we might call intimidation uh, in the workplace. This can mean threatening to close the plant or close the uh, store if the workers vote for a union, um, firing people who are organizing a union or who express uh, support for the union. Again, it's illegal to be fired for supporting a union, uh, but we have let enforcement of our own labor laws slides such that there's no accountability there. There are many states like Virginia that have what they call right-to-work laws. How do they tip the balance of fairness between labor and management? Yeah, essentially right-to-work laws are laws that make it harder to organize a union. So in a right-to-work state, if you are part of a workplace that has voted to form a union, you do not have to pay union dues. Right-to-work laws create a free rider problem. They make it more difficult for unions to organize because not everyone has to pay, pay dues. That's what right-to-work laws do, but they're actually bigger than that as well. They're kind of symbols insofar as some companies are you know, looking to open their, their shop in a place that has weak labor laws and non-support for unions. Right-to-work laws are kind of symbolic of that approach to a wider range of labor issues. Do you think it skews how politicians vote on those laws because they think, oh no, if we don't keep our labor laws favoring businesses, we'll lose the big relocations of the huge companies? Absolutely. One of the key things that limits public action and political action on inequality is this sense that we have to stay competitive and we have to make sure that we don't ask too much of our companies or else our companies will go and find somewhere else to employ people. Right-to-work laws are sort of a part of that broadly shared economic insecurity that we face not just as individuals and households, but also communities and local governments who are trying to make sure that we build healthy economies for our constituents and our neighbors. Moving back to worker pay, there are a couple of phrases I'm curious about. One is wage inequality and the other is wage gap. Are they really the same thing? Let me tell you how I use those terms. For me, wage inequality is some measure of the spread of pay. The people at the top are making seven times more than the people at the bottom in the national economy or in the Virginia state economy or something like that. When we talk about wage gaps, more often what we mean is kind of within that distribution, how do race, ethnicity, and gender kind of intersect such that people who have either similar levels of education or work in similar jobs, are they paid the same amount for the work that they do? What is it that leads to a persistent wage gap in that regard? One of the things that keeps the racial and gender wage gap persistent is discrimination as well. A big source of the wage gap is differences in who does what types of work. Certain types of work are paid less because they're valued less. And so jobs that are predominantly held by women, people of color, especially women of color, are paid less not because of how much value is produced or how technically complicated those jobs are, but by virtue of who performs that work. You and a colleague from Rutgers are finishing a book, Work in Black and White, Striving for the American Dream. What are you getting at there? Sure. So this book is about inequality in access to secure, stable employment uh, along racial and gender lines. We're looking specifically at black and white Americans. And so we're documenting both how black and white men and women understand their own economic insecurity, their own vulnerability, and also how they kind of make meaning around um, who they understand as having better access to security and, and good jobs than they do. One of the things you've noticed is that a lot of times for white workers, there's a dismay over what what once was that is no longer. And for African-American workers who might also be suffering with pay inequality, there's more a sense of, well, we actually never had the good times, so we're a little more optimistic about what may lie ahead. Absolutely, right? So we're looking at educationally advantaged 
um, middle-aged Americans. And one of the things we're finding is that white workers, men and women, very much remember 20, 40 years ago the economic lives of their parents and their other family members. It's a time when more opportunities were more available and they're mourning the loss of access to good, stable jobs. And um, as we say in the book, black workers cannot mourn something that they never had. Uh, we have a long history of African-Americans working hard and making advances in educational attainment, but not having economic stability that's commensurate with those educational accomplishments. By any measure, black Americans have less economic stability than white Americans. But compared with white Americans, black Americans are somewhat more optimistic that things are going to get better in the future. It's also really interesting that you both come to the conclusion that Americans talk too much about education. Why do you say policymakers and others are putting too much emphasis on education? While a college education has never been more important as a sort of starting point for trying to gain economic uh, security, it's no longer an effective insurance policy. We have a large degree of kind of inequality among people with higher degrees. And we need to really build a politics and a discourse that looks beyond education as the only way of attaining economic security. We need to direct people's attention away from education and toward the invisible policy choices that we've made as a society to shape what our workplace opportunities look like and who gets what within the labor market. We're expecting our schools to do too much. We're expecting our schools to solve problems that are fundamentally rooted in the workplace and the fact that we have not a lot of good jobs that pay a stable and decent wage. Uh, and we can do something about that. We can build a more equitable economy and better job opportunities, but not if we keep focusing on the individual, not if we keep saying, well, if you know, you're not happy with your situation, you should have gone to school longer, you should have gotten a different degree. So long as we're kind of throwing it back to the individual, we're not talking about those shared policy choices that could make for better opportunities across the board. Caroline Hanley, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. My pleasure. Thank you. Caroline Hanley is a professor of sociology at William & Mary. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. It's getting more expensive to survive in America, and many of the jobs we're holding on to will someday be wiped out by AI. Sarah Grace Mansky is a professor of business and global affairs at George Mason University. She envisions an economy where we'll get paid for solving problems where we're the experts in our own backyards. Describe yourself as a political economist, an ethicist, global technologist, entrepreneur, and you've been involved with projects for years that are aimed at empowering workers. What was your background that you could understand the plight of workers so well? Well, I grew up in the Midwest and in Wisconsin, and it was like heavily focused on manufacturing. That's what most people's parents did. My mom was an ER nurse and my stepfather was a firefighter. And I saw my friends go and work in the factories and saw how hard those jobs were, but they were well-paying jobs. And once NAFTA got passed, you know, the whole city kind of collapsed as the jobs left. People didn't have any sort of good paying job anymore. It wasn't like you don't need to get 
more than a high school degree, you can go and work in the factory. And that was not an option. And so you saw all kinds of things happen when people don't have good paying jobs. And, you know, the opioid crisis came in and hit the area very hard. And, you know, there was like a rise in racism and crime. And it just impacted me personally. And I thought, okay, now I'm in college, I'm going to work on anti-sweatshop campaigns and labor rights. And I ended up working as a union organizer in DC and doing labor radio. And the whole process of watching this happen on a, not only in the Midwest, but on a national scale, and even globally, workers around the world suffer a lot. Watching this happen internationally was what, you know, drove me to do the work that I'm involved in now. What were those factory jobs? What sorts of jobs did your friends and family members have in the factories? In Janesville, there was a large GM auto manufacturing plant. There was also a Simmons mattress plant. There was Parker Penn. And in larger Wisconsin, there is dairy. And a lot of dairy farms also started to go out of business with collapsing milk prices. And The response to that was the growth of the cooperative movement in different sectors. And in the agricultural sector, Organic Valley was formed. And you can go and buy the eggs and milk in the store right now. It's a huge cooperative collective in the egg movement in Wisconsin. And also workers started to organize in Madison, doing all kinds of cooperative cab companies, engineering firms, bakeries. There's even a cooperative noodle-making company. So it's an effective response to when jobs disappear. When you said it hit me personally, do you mean you had actual friends who lost jobs, became more indigent, or addicted to opioids? Absolutely. Yeah, I saw friends of mine who aren't around anymore because they died. A lot of people died or went to prison because their response was kind of self-medication through through opioids. And it's, you know, I, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just tragic. <laughs> like, I, I can't stress enough when I talk to people around the world that you know, they're like, tell me like, oh, the United States is so amazing. Everybody must be so wealthy. And I explained to them that there's very large portions of Wisconsin that they barely have enough food to eat because they're only getting $200 a month for food stamps and they have to get all their teeth pulled because there's no dental care, you know, and it's not, it's not like this problem is serious in the United States and it's just not being addressed. Why did all that happen? How how could we have been manufacturing and thriving and people have carved out middle-class lives for themselves and then it all just started to go away seemingly at once? Well, NAFTA was passed and what that meant was that manufacturing jobs could leave the country and go in search of the cheapest labor possible around the world. So everything became a race to the bottom in terms of environmental standards and wages and labor standards. And you got the rise of sweatshops around the world manufacturing our clothing. And some people would say, well, yes, that was the price we paid. We lost all the jobs, but we were able to purchase our goods for much cheaper and it is true, you can get a TV for, you know, $100, but the price that we paid was you know, environmental destruction and the immiseration of people in other parts of the world, and also the loss of good-paying manufacturing jobs here. So I don't, I don't think that was a good bargain, and we have to work on relocalizing manufacturing in the United States and also thinking about how do we transition to the next economy one that is regenerative and not destructive and extractive. Your current project is called Bread and Roses. What is Bread and Roses and what does that name stand for? Bread and Roses is a project to create a private lending network for employees to have the capital, to have the money to buy out their employer. So there are a lot of employers in the United States who'd like to sell their business Now, if they sell to some global conglomerate corporation, um, that corporation could shut the company down or make working conditions even worse. 
And it's much better to sell to the employees who create all the value and who know how to operate the business and who will make decisions that are good for themselves and the community. So Bread and Roses, I called it that because there's a classic poem called Bread and Roses. And let me pull it up here because it's a beautiful poem. Small art and love and beauty, they're dodging spirits new. Yes, it is bread we fight for, but we fight for roses too. As we go marching, marching, we bring the greater days. The rising of women means the rising of the race. No more drudge and idler, ten that toil where one reposes, but sharing of life's glories, bread and roses, bread and roses. And that is perfect description of what I want people's work to be. I want it to be meaningful and life-affirming and not drudgery (laughs) where we go, we drag ourselves to work every day and we only live on the weekends. My future, all of our future, I hope is one where we do the work we love and we do it for each other commonly, collectively in the spirit of mutual aid. You've done a lot of thinking about the digital world, the AI world, its impact on finance, but especially on people. What do you think AI is going to do in the next few years to jobs? Well, as AI develops, it's a certainty that many, many jobs, up to potentially 40% of all jobs, will be taken over by AI. And I don't want to mourn the loss of drudgery work. You know, a lot of service work is just unpleasant. And so if we can get a machine to do it for us, great. But we can't leave those people with no path forward. Um, Some politicians and others will say, well, we'll just give them, you know, a basic income so they don't starve to death. People don't work only to eat, you know, they want to have meaning in their lives. They want to be productive members of society. So a universal basic income only feeds our bellies, but not our hearts and our souls. And what we need to do is create a way for people to do the work that needs to be done in the United States and get paid for it and have power over their lives. And so that's, that's why I'm doing bread and roses. And if we don't, do this, um, we will end up with millions of people in the United States who have been put out of work and now feel like the country doesn't work for them. Um, And that is already happening. And it's pretty scary. Like we have 30% of the population that just wants to burn the whole thing down. So in addition to the bread and roses concept where employees take over businesses, owners want to sell, what's another way to not just simply give people displaced by AI, basic income. How do we find meaningful meaningful activities for people whose jobs disappear? So what we want to do is give people tools that are easy to use, that allow them to have power over their lives and solve local problems, because all problems are best solved at the local level. And the people in each community know what needs to be done. They know which playground needs to be fixed and which school needs new books. So we give people power to solve their own problems and give them the money to do so and the expertise will be in a much better place than we are right now. Whatever happened to Janesville after it got hollowed out by NAFTA and the departure of all those factories and businesses, did it recover? Uh, no, Janesville has not recovered. And after the factories left, you had Walmart and the big box stores, you know, open up at the edge of town by the interstate and all the local mom and pop brick and mortar stores went out of business. So then the downtown collapsed as well. So, no, Janesville really hasn't improved. You drive through the city and um, it's very segregated and And it's also segregated in terms of the few wealthy people who live there and everybody else. What's another simple idea you could share with us as policymakers look to help craft a better future for workers? I just feel like what the pandemic taught us was that there are cracks in our system and there's weaknesses in our supply chains and When we face global crises, we need to come together in the spirit of mutual aid. 
we felt like we're all in this crisis together, but we haven't really been given any tools to do something about it. Um, and so I feel like there's this general undercurrent of unease about the situation that everybody kind of knows we're in this, this period Antonio Gramsci calls the interregnum, meaning like the old has died, but the new has not yet been born. Everybody has that feeling. There's a group of technologists around the world, they call themselves the crypto commons movement, that are using these technologies like blockchain to build up new systems to create commonly owned wealth, where we purchase land and we all have access to it and can use it. Or we create restaurants where everybody in the community can eat there, whether you have money or not. Collective housing and kind of going through all the institutions, all the need, basic needs we have as humans and trying to make that available commonly rather than we're all kind of atomized individuals who have to just fend for ourselves. Near impossible to achieve, but the thing that we should strive for. Well, the great American revolutionary Thomas Paine, who wrote Common Sense, you know, my favorite quote of his is, we have it in our power to build the world again. When we build the world again, we can make it however we want. And so I think we can do it. I'm optimistic that, that we will do it. Sarah Mansky, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Sarah Grace Mansky is a professor of business and global affairs at George Mason University. President Joe Biden has confidence we're going to be able to rein in high inflation. But for now, everyday Americans are counting every dollar and packing lunches to save money where we can, especially at the grocery store. Chris Harrington is a professor of economics at Virginia Commonwealth University and sees grocery prices that are still on the rise. Chris, food prices, along with everything else, seemed to especially go up last spring as we were coming out of lockdown. When did you first notice that prices were going up? You know, the, the first time it really hit me, frankly, was when my wife and I were searching for a new car. The car she was driving was 17 years old, and so... We were in the market, and, and it was not an ideal time to buy a car at all. Um, and so everywhere we looked, um, we were seeing, of course, a shortage of new cars and dealers that were charging above MSRP for new cars. And so that was, that was the first time it really hit home to me that we were not going to be negotiating. We were not going to be getting a great deal, um, that we were kind of stuck with everyone else in a tight car market and, and we were going to have to pay more than we wanted. Same for me. I have a 25-year-old car and I'd like to replace it with a used car, but that's not 25. Right. But this doesn't <laughs> seem to be the time, right? No, although the used cars uh, kind of hit their peak earlier this summer, and, and uh, the last numbers I looked at, they were starting to come back down again. So hopefully that's uh, better <laughs> uh, if, you're, if you're in the used car market now. <laughs> oh, yeah. It seems like inflation really took off right as we all came out of the pandemic. So we were in lockdown. We were hanging on to what money we had whether stimulus or salary or what we could scrounge. And then we came out of the lockdown ready to spend, but prices started to soar. Yes, that's right. By mid-2021, I think is when we were starting to see the first, let's call them uncomfortable price increases, you know, above what we're used to in that 2 to 3% range. That's when we first started seeing numbers up in like the 4 5 6% range. And thinking, okay, this is uh, this is a little different than than what we've experienced in a long time, and then I would say by end of twenty one, beginning of of twenty two, that's when we really started seeing some of these, I would say, exceptionally high numbers in like the seven eight percent inflation range, and that's uh, you know that's that's really extraordinary in the sense that we haven't seen numbers like that in decades. When did we last see high high inflation like this? The last time we saw inflation um, numbers in the 8% range was the early 1980s. Coming out of the energy crises of the late 1970s and then going into the early 1980s, 
we had inflation above 10%, sometimes above 12%. Um, so those those were extraordinary times. And it, of course, it took um, very aggressive tightening of monetary policy to bring that inflation back down. And it didn't just go away on its own. We actually had to impose monetary policy tools to make it go down? That's right. When Paul Volcker was the chair of the Federal Reserve, um, he came in and and had sort of a single-minded focus on bringing inflation under control and instituted very tight monetary policy, raised the federal funds rate. And it, you know, there were some painful times for, I think, a lot of people in the early 1980s as, as inflation was coming down. Um, you know, we had uh, we had recessionary periods there. We had high unemployment. So there was certainly uh, some economic cost to pay in order to get inflation to come down and, and to remain kind of low and stable in the years that followed. Isn't it likely we therefore should also be years with inflation here, even though we're trying to be aggressive with the Fed policy? That's a possibility, although I don't personally really expect us to be in this environment for years to come. I also don't think it's going to be a matter of months. I think it's somewhere in between. The Fed is uh, acting pretty aggressively to raise the federal funds rate to counter inflation. You know, they've, they've raised the rates at the last several meetings, and I think every expectation is that they're going to continue raising rates. So they are showing um, a very committed stance to keep inflation from getting worse and to bring it back down to a more reasonable range. I, I definitely don't think we're going to keep seeing numbers in the 7 8% range for years to come. I think within the next year or two, we're going to see some of these pandemic-induced shortages um, and pandemic-induced spikes in demand that are going to fade out and and uh, help us bring those inflationary numbers back down to something closer to what we're used to. Do you think that this inflationary cycle has a lot to do with the pandemic? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I don't think we would be in this position at all if it were not for, for COVID. You know, we were, we were in a period for almost 40 years where uh, the Federal Reserve had had a great handle on monetary policy and kept inflation very low and stable and reliable. So we we always had you know pretty well anchored expectations about what inflation would be, and it took a very large shock like COVID to disrupt that. Do you have any other tools than the Fed to try to bring it down? No, I mean this inflation really falls under the purview of the Fed. It's their responsibility. There are certainly other things that can affect it. Fiscal policy, you know, government spending comes to mind, of course. But uh, at the end of the day, it's the Fed's responsibility to make sure that inflation comes back down. So Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Do you think that will make an appreciable impact on the wallets of ordinary people? I think there are components of the Inflation Reduction Act that will make an impact on the budgets of everyday Americans um, who are in particular circumstances. I don't expect the Inflation Reduction Act, frankly, to do much about inflation. Um, I think it was sort of misnamed in that sense. So I, I really don't expect anything in that act to have a huge impact on the prices we're seeing. What is the inflationary situation for other countries comparable to the U.S.? What's happening in Europe and China and Canada and Mexico? Yeah, so I would say that inflation is a global phenomenon right now, and that's largely because COVID was a global phenomenon. And many of uh, the other countries are experiencing the same inflationary pressures and the same reasons for those that we are. They're experiencing supply chain issues, uh, shortages, and many of the things that we talk about, like like gasoline and oil and commodities like wheat, these are items that are traded in global markets. And so if there's a, a strain, a shortage uh, for gasoline in the U.S. or a shortage for wheat, you know, related to the, to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, those are uh, the types of disruptions that are not just going to affect the U.S., they're going to affect everyone. 
what are some items like <laughs> hotels and car rental and some of the big ticket things seem to have gone up a lot more than maybe the rate of inflation? Uh, that's a good question. You know, we, we tend to pay attention to the things that go up the most. Certainly, I've felt it when I've bought airline tickets or hotel rooms. But I, I also just had to buy a new washing machine a few weeks ago when mine broke. And it turns out the price index for major appliances has actually come down a bit recently. So it's funny that some of those big ticket items, we really noticed the price increases and some of them were not doing so poorly. Have you noticed higher prices even in the grocery store? I don't know if you do the weekly shopping in your family. I do uh, do the grocery shopping in my family, and, and I have noticed higher prices. Uh, that That's certainly something that's popped out to me as well. Have so, you stubbornly I, refused to buy a favorite item that you saw go up more <laughs> than you wanted it to? <laughs> no, I haven't. Although, I, I you know, I will say I've been in, in need of a new laptop for quite a while. I think my current laptop is about seven years old. I just keep watching and watching. And, and a year or two ago, I was hearing about computer chip shortages and I wasn't seeing good deals. And, and that's one where I was a little stubborn. I said, you know, I'm just going to make this thing limp along a little bit longer and hold out and see what happens. And now I think we've more or less res resolved the chip shortage and uh, computer prices are looking more reasonable. So I think I'm back in the market on that one again. <laughs> I still haven't <laughs> pulled the trigger. I still haven't bought one. That's great. There's hope for me in my car, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, Chris Harrington, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Chris Harrington is a professor of economics at Virginia Commonwealth University. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Custo are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>